Olivia Jumpy from the British Blacklist. Rebecca, it's wonderful to speak to you today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you for asking. Having Passing be your directorial debut, it's mm. a pretty big, um, brave shout about the kind of filmmaker you're going to be. Is that a statement you're going to make or...? Um, um, what you- yeah, <laughs> i set myself up for that, haven't I? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think I've always wanted to make films and I've always been interested in, in, in pushing boundaries a little bit, I, you know, in my quiet way. I'm not exactly noisy about it, but that is, that is always where my interest gravitates towards. So I suspect it will continue that way. And long may it because- of- <laughs> Thank you. So how did you convince the producers and the powers that be that this story is the one to go with and, and it's an important story that needs to be shared? It took a long time, is the truth. I mean, I wrote the script 13 years ago and it sat in a drawer for six years because I didn't have the nerve to, to, to do it. But then when I did get the nerve to do it, it came out and then people, it was extraordinary what people would say to me. I'd have conversations with film producers and finance people where they'd say things like, wow, this book, I've got to read the book. It sounds amazing. I mean, I can't believe how relevant it is and how like, like provocative and interesting it is. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, so you're going to give me the money? No, 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 no. And I'd be like, well, why? Like, well, it's just so ambiguous. And so like, I don't know. And also you want to make it in black and white. I don't you know. I don't know that we can do that. And it'll be art house and no one will see it. And it was very disheartening. And it, and then I, you know, moved on a little bit and the conversation became more about, oh, we'll give you the money if you make it in color. But I didn't want to do that. And then there was a very, then there was a very real risk of making it in color or not making it at all. And I sort of went with the risk of not making it at all because part of me arrogantly believed that it would work out. And then I had the good fortune to meet Nina Young Bon Jovi and Forrest Whitaker, who, who literally specializes a company in doing the thing that everyone says no to. And they, I remember they just sat me down and said, like, your vision is correct for this. Like, we are not gonna mess with that. Everything you need, we'll just find the way to do it. You might have to make it for a lot less money than maybe you'd like, but we'll get, we'll get it done. And they came true to that. I mean, you know, and then of course it was like ironic because then after that, then there were several people who were like, watch the movie and said, it's great, but it will never sell because it's going to be art house and niche. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm I'm enormously heartened that I'm sat here now um, with Netflix having bought it. It's going to be seen by many, many people because of that. And the realization that actually, yes, the emotional lives of two women of color can be mainstream and commercial. It's like. And the fact that it was adapted from Nella Larson's book of the same name. And so I read that you were shocked about the feeling of recognition with the characters and the storyline. And then, sorry, and then you soon after wrote the script. Uh, I wanted to, I guess, why- Get into that. No, not why were you shocked? Because I can understand if it's maybe the feeling of being seen and someone articulating your emotions or something that you're feeling. Mm, mm. So I guess I wanted actually to ask what that that first script was like and how did you get from that first, I guess, (laughs) emotional dump of, oh my God, to the script we're seeing on screen today. I'm trying, I wish I, I'm not even sure that I still have that first draft. I know that it was messy and like all over the place and but I also know that it was it was sort of um it was written in 10 days I remember it because I I didn't sort of sleep or do anything for 10 days because I 
I was so sort of inspired by the book. I mean, yes, I have this personal connection to it. And yes, it was giving me language. I didn't even have a word. I didn't even have the word passing before I read the book. So to actually understand what my grandfather did and to and for a book to explain to me why my mother didn't have language or a sort of clear sense of her own identity was huge. But also creatively, it it sparked something in me. Like I remember being 10 pages in and thinking this has got to be black and white. And all of the, uh, the big ideas that I had were there. So th a lot of the big ideas were there, but the rest of it was very... Um, my memory of the rest of it was that it was very like long winded expository and sort of, you know, not as, I mean, it's a good thing on some level that I had 13 years because my shining lights for the adaptation and the, the movie as a director were always economy, ambiguity, economy, ambiguity. And I firmly believe that one doesn't exist without the other. And I, the 13 years allowed me to lean it down and lean it down and lean it down. Like what's the, what is the simplest expression of this idea that allows for the most complexity? And I completely understand why it's black and white and I get it, but could you ex express why you were so adamant that it had to be black and white? Yeah. I mean, like when people said to me, can you make it in color? I just remember feeling, I really can't actually like it, it won't work. It just won't work. Like I had to, it felt, so important to me to make the world metaphorically resonant and to constantly put on display these binaries everywhere of black, white, gay, straight, man, woman, rich, poor. I mean, Nella Larson touches on all of them and how all of them intersect. And it was, it felt to me the sort of purest expression of the limitations of those binaries because ultimately black and white film isn't black and white as we talk about it, as we perceive it, it's gray. It's one massive gray area, just like everything else. So that's the sort of simplest way to explain it. But, you know, it also allowed me enormous creative freedom with, with lighting states and textures so that you can kind of highlight the slippery reality of all these things and see how they can shift um, and see how it's about context and how we perceive it. And I find it fascinating that people watch it and kind of go, well, this looks this way or that looks that way. And you kind of think, well, that's your perception because actually none of this looks the way you're seeing it because the world doesn't look black and white. But anyway, <laughs> it's like... It's interesting looking at the, the lead actresses, Ruth Negger and Tessa Thompson. And I, I actually, actually, with you saying that your grandfather didn't have a word for passing, your mother didn't have a word for passing, you didn't have a word for passing. Growing up, I was kind of obsessed with the African-American history, the narrative. Mm -hmm. So I had I known about passing, but I had I never could visualize what does that what did that woman look like that those people look like? Look like. And I have my contemporary idea of what a mixed race person looks like or an extremely light skinned person yeah. looks like. I would go to the features being straight and the lips being the yeah. you know yeah. thinner, but yeah. yet as you said, it's context, because in that space- It's not accurate. So, like, yeah. so many different faces passed. You'd be, we'd all be shocked by what passed and what did it. I mean, like, it was sort of as many as you can think of. It's just the sort of, it's a, it is context. And I, I always thought about this actually in, in relation to that first scene in the hotel room with when John walks into the room and the two of them are sitting there and and I really wanted to create, and this is because of black and white, I was afforded this, but I wanted to create like an oppressively white state. Like the, the walls are white, the costumes are white, there's light coming in the side. And that's like, yeah, okay. Cause they're in 
whatever, but it's also because they're in a white man's context, right? And he has the power to say, because he is the most powerful man in that room, he has the power to say what he's seeing, what he wants to see. And that, you, you know, you can see that with that. <laughs> you, you wouldn't be able to have that in color. Um, it, and it's it's so, I 100% agree, it's um, so beautifully shot and it's breathtaking, but also breathtaking with that feeling of bated breath at every step of the way um, for the experience of Irene and Claire. Could you tell us how you did that and not why, because I get it. Again, it's like, I guess it, but I just want to hear your words. Yeah, I mean, it always felt to me like a pressure cooker. And, you know, and I think actually, funnily enough, my my Britishness comes into play here as well, because there is a certain there is a certain sort of like tension of manners. I mean, like the the sort of before the end that like the worst thing that happens is that she drops a teapot. Let's be honest. <laughs> you know, there is a there is a lot of like social politeness and going on and like, but also just the claustrophobia of that, like the hellscape that that is and, and finding a way to turn that into a suspenseful landscape. I found really interesting, this sort of performance of manners and people not saying what they want to say. And, and how did I do that? I think a lot of it is to do with silence actually a lot of it is to do with the like the the sound design there's not really a bird tweet or a traffic horn that isn't placed and thought about in the movie like the, all of those things add to us experiencing the world like Irene does narrowly you know you only see this one bit of street that she sees every day you don't see the rest of New York deliberately because she is bound by that and, you know, bound by the repetition of domestic life. So the repeat of the things that she does, she gets the groceries, she doesn't know how to talk to her maid, it's uncomfortable, she falls asleep in an armchair, her house feels oppressive and her, which should feel safe, but it's not because she's a, a bomb waiting to go off. And that's, that was the sort of, you know, think about all the ways in which you can mount that tension and then also between them, you know, it's like a lot of it is between them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, so it's set in the 1920s at the peak of the Harlem Renaissance. And again, for me, it was interesting seeing how black and white people interacted during that time. Mm. Um, when our perception of the time, the, the dominant narrative revolves around rape, racism and separatism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, how deep do you have to go into the research to set the mood and tone and you're kind of turning on its head something that we, even myself, I was like, oh, so we're white, could white women and light-skinned women, can, could they interact like that? I knew they were like speakeasy, yeah. people would, as you explore. It was definitely an interesting moment for, obviously it was a very interesting moment for black culture, but it was kind of an interesting moment for all the like white elites and intellectuals who were sort of going up and hobnobbing in Harlem, you know? And it, I found out a lot about that from, actually Nella Larson's autobiography, there's a huge passage about Carl Van Vechten, who helped her get published and who the character of Hugh Wentworth is obviously based on. And he definitely, you know, he, he, he exploited it too, and kind of terribly, but he was definitely a figure who, like, you know, he, he, he had his own secrets, you know, he was, he was quite publicly in the closet. Like he would go to Harlem and, and have dalliances with, with men and bring his wife. Um, and I think that that scene between them in the movie, he, the character that, that that guy's based on, Hugh Wentworth, played by Bill Camp, 
is so fascinating to me because it's the one moment that you really get a glimpse of what Irene might be if she didn't have so much constriction around her. You know, if she was actually free to be herself, you see this kind of acerbic, slightly kind of witty, kind of kind of sparkly person, and then it goes back underground again. And she, it's only afforded her this moment because she's talking to a man who's hiding as well. You know, and when she says, we're all of us passing for something, she's like, I got you because I know you're gay. And, you know, I can tell you things that I know aren't because I've got your secret. And I always thought that's quite potent that, that there's that sort of alliance between them in that moment. Yes, yes. I'm smiling so much because <laughs> I felt that as well. And it was, it was very much like the power dynamics because it's like she, she's got something on him where in any other situation, he she could wouldn't. have power over her and Absolutely. she would never be able to talk to him like that. So yeah. that came through. Um, just let's speak about your, your leading actresses. Um, was this a chance casting with Ruth Negger and Tess Thompson, Tessa Thompson, I should say, or had you visualized them as your characters prior to the... No, I did. I did visualize them. <laughs> I didn't yeah. visualize them necessarily. It was funny when I was, all the, the whole process of casting Irene and Claire, I always had this funny thought like, you know, whoever whoever you cast should be able to play the other person's part too, on some oh. level. <laughs> and I, it was really interesting because I went to Ruth first, and and I was thinking I'm going to cast Irene first, and then I'm going to find the Claire that works with that Irene. And but when I sat down with her, she said to me, "It's great. I'll do whatever you want. I want to be a part of this. Um, I'll play whichever part you want me to play, but you have to let me play Claire." Like end of. <laughs> <laughs> it was so exciting actually because up until that point I was the things I'd watched her in I think she'd sort of she'd exhibited a, an incredible capacity to reveal an interiority and a sort of stoicism around that which feels very Irene but she has an effervescence in life that is so clear <laughs> and it was so thrilling to see that and just think oh but she contains a little bit of the the two of them and Tessa I just i I thought about her for the role and everybody said to me, don't stop thinking about Tessa Thompson because she's completely unavailable. Um, we'll never get her. She'll never do this tiny thing, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, but I watched her and I was like, became increasingly convinced that she was the perfect Irene to Ruth Claire. And because she approaches roles with this sort of intuition that's almost sensual. I don't know. It's like a kind of vulnerable, like she's very, it's like she's feeling out the truth. And I thought if you take that quality and you put it underground and you cover it up with a bunch of layers of social performance, you've got Irene because you've got that thing underneath. Like you don't want her to be just a kind of prim righteous. I mean, she'd be a nightmare. And then <laughs> you've got to feel for her all the time. And that's what you get with Tessa. Anyway, she was unavailable. Then I spoke to her and she, she managed to get available. So I'm like... <laughs> Wonderful. And the fact that you see them, you see them and it comes across on screen is a testament to your skill as well. Thank you. Brilliant. Um, Thank can't you. wait to see more work from you. Um, it's wonderful speaking to you. You too. Thank you very much.